Hey, this is Noah Levine, founder of Against the Stream, Refuge Recovery, and Dharma Punks. Thanks for tuning in to the podcast. I hope you're enjoying the Dharma. Together, may we create a positive change on this planet. If you feel moved to leave a donation, there's a link in the show notes. May our paths cross soon. Welcome, everybody. Anybody here for the first time tonight? Welcome, welcome. Anybody at home here for the first night? Welcome. Um, this is the regular Monday night class of Against the Stream. We've been meeting like this for decades now, about 16 years here on the east side of Los Angeles and about 10 years before that when I was up in San Francisco and New York and different places around the planet gathering to meditate as is the tradition in Buddhism. It's uh, considered very important to practice meditation with other people and to develop community, what we call Sangha, the word is Sangha. And um, so many reasons to come to a class like this. One maybe is just to learn some of the basics, learn meditation, learn about the Buddha's teachings. Uh, but so many people keep coming after years and they've already learned it. You heard a few Dharma talks, you've heard it all. It's the same shit over and over and over. But we get together to um, meet each other and connect with each other and support each other in trying to develop the wisdom and the compassion and to live our lives along these lines that are uh, rare. It's not... Uh, it's not ordinary in this world to be mindful. It's not ordinary. It's not normal to be compassionate. Uh, it's actually a very radical task that we're taking on. And so it's thought in the Buddha's, one of the Buddhist teachings was it's really important to have other like-minded friendships to develop connections with people who will support you and that you can support and maybe will challenge you at times and you will challenge so one of the ways that I uh, try to do that here at Against the Stream to facilitate people meeting each other and connecting is um, as we begin, uh, have you introduce yourselves to some people, but I'm going to give you a something to reflect on real quick and then a question to sort of check in with the small group that you'll jump into in a moment. Uh, I'm going to talk about the third noble truth tonight. This is the place in the Buddha's teaching where he says, it's possible in this lifetime through your own effort to become enlightened, to experience nirvana, that uh, there's no faith necessary. There's no divine intervention. It's not magic. It's not that it's actually a human potential for each one of us to get free, totally free from reacting to our pain in a way that creates suffering on top of our pain from reacting to pleasure in a way that creates suffering in our relationship to pleasure. Um, so just reflecting on that, hearing that, what do you think? You think you think it's possible? You think freedom is possible? Maybe you could frame it as true happiness, like a sustainable contentment. Of course, probably none of us have ever been there, like actually content or we wouldn't be here most likely. <laughs> If you were enlightened and content and totally happy, you might not be meditating with us tonight. Most of us, including myself, are continuing to do this because it's a goal. 
I want to be as free as possible. And so I keep doing this because I believe that this meditation practice will lead me to more freedom, that practicing the Dharma in every aspect of my life will lead me to more and more freedom. It's been my, my experience so far. Some of you are brand new and you don't know what the fuck I'm talking about and your therapist told you to come here or your parole officer or something, um, but you're here. And um, what I'd like to ask you to do is to connect with like maybe three people. I'm going to put in at home, I'm going to put you in a, in a small group, connect with like three people and then just say like, what do you think? You think it's possible to get free? How free do you think it's possible to get in this life? Free from suffering. What level? Like 80%? Like where's your faith? Like maybe people can get like 80% free or 70% or nine or a hundred percent free so that we could actually live our life and no matter what is happening, we won't suffer about it. And I think that's important. I'm not saying like, you're gonna have bliss all of the time, that's bullshit. You're still gonna have pain. You're still gonna have loss. You're still gonna have difficulties, but not suffering about the difficulties, not suffering about the losses or the pains or the challenges that you face in this life. Um, so that's your question to discuss with your small group. You'll have a few minutes. Breakout groups, I'll start now. So go ahead, a couple of people. Try to talk to some people you don't know. It's too easy just to talk to your homies. Try to... And at home, you just get what you get. We'll see. It'll give you an invitation to jump into one of these groups.
Not sure exactly how free we can get in this lifetime, but I'm absolutely convinced that without meditation practice, it's impossible to get free. That nobody can think their way or study their way or uh, 
just be struck awake that it's actually a, a human uh, capacity, but that it takes a, a deep level of investigation that we have to do for ourselves. And that investigation we call meditation. So uh, we'll meditate and then we'll uh, have some talk and discussion about uh, liberation. And I'm going to focus specifically on the teachings of uh, Lungpur Sumedho, and, uh, a Buddhist monk, Ajahn Sumedho, who, you know, sometimes talking about enlightenment, I feel like such a fraud because I'm like, fuck, what the fuck do I know? I'm not enlightened. Uh, but it's one of the Buddhist teachings. So as a Buddhist teacher, I have to talk about it all of the time and I can reflect on my own progress on the path, but I can't, uh, I don't have any perfection to share with anybody. Ajahn Sumedho has been one of my teachers, one of the people who's inspired me and I've studied with some for the last 30 years. And uh, he's one of the most free people I've ever met. So I'm happy to share some of his teachings because I think he knows what he's talking about a bit more than I do. So we can reflect together on his teachings tonight about liberation, about freedom. So uh, find a way to sit that feels appropriate for meditation, upright, relaxed, however you want to arrange your body. As you're ready, allowing your eyes to be closed. Taking a moment to relax any tightness in the jaw or shoulders or belly. Establishing a Intention to be friendly towards your own experience, the thoughts and emotions and sensations that will arise, met with kindness and acceptance as much as you can. One of Ajahn Sumedho's famous teachings is the simple acknowledgement right now, it's like this. So just try saying that in your own heart and mind as you bring mindfulness to the present. Right now, the body's breathing in or the body's breathing out. Right now, the mind is thinking about the future or the past or is present. Right now, these sounds, these sensations, these emotions are here, sorrow or joy, worry or doubt, the practice of Mindfulness is non-judgmental, present time, 
investigative awareness. We're investigating, we're inquiring, we're contemplating what's happening moment to moment in the body. Is the breath coming or going? Anytime you feel like you're not very present in the meditation, just say in your mind, right now it's like this. The mind is wandering in fantasy and story. Sometimes just acknowledging these are just thoughts can help break us out of the identification, the entanglement with the thought. We return to the present, feeling the body sitting, breathing. you're new to practice, simply use the breath as the primary focus. Breathing in, know that you're breathing in. Breathing out, know that you're breathing out. Feel the sensations. Use that as the focus each time you get involved in thinking. Come back to the breath. We're not trying to stop our minds, but we are, for this first part, trying to ignore disengage from the mind, be fully engaged with the sensations in the body. And the sensation of the breath is a reliable refuge as long as you're alive and breathing. Always come back to the breath. But right now it's like this is so much broader than a narrow focus on the breath that's acknowledging your whole being. Emotions and sounds, smells and tastes. And when we're mindful, We understand that it is impermanent. Whatever is happening right now is arising and passing. 
You're using this phrase as a contemplation in your meditation. Right now, it's like this. What is the it? Is it a sound that's taking your attention or a sensation, a thought, or a feeling? When you identify where the attention is landing, also investigate, identify the feeling tone. Is that thought that keeps calling for my attention a pleasant thought or unpleasant? The sensations in my body that keep drawing the attention away from the breath to the knee or the back. Pleasant or unpleasant sensations, perhaps neutral. Right now it's like this and it hurts. Or right now it's like this and it's comfortable, pleasant perhaps.
not trying to stop the mind, but use the mind to reflect, to investigate, to analyze right now what's happening in your heart, in your mind, in your body. To see clearly, to comprehend the impermanent nature of thought, of feeling, of sensation. To see suffering. Where is there suffering in your direct experience in this moment? What are you clinging about or aversive to? Pushing away, holding on, craving. What's the mind telling you would make you happy? I could be happy if only I were more comfortable. If I had less difficult emotions, if my mind wasn't so critical. So much of our suffering caused by craving, craving for sense pleasures, for material things. If I just had enough money to remodel the bathroom, then I'd be happy. Right now it's like this, doesn't get rid of the confusion in the mind, it just acknowledges it. Oh, my mind is confused. Doesn't get rid of the discomforts in the body, it just acknowledges it. Oh, it's quite unpleasant, it's painful. Calling for tolerance and compassion in the body.
we're practicing mindfulness in this way, there's no such thing as a distraction. Any sounds or thoughts aren't distracting us, they're just happening right now. Just hearing and thinking. Even pain in your body, if you get real uncomfortable sitting still, also not a distraction, just pain right now. It's stabbing. Whether the mind is loud or quiet and the body is comfortable or uncomfortable. The goal is more acceptance with awareness, with compassion for what is, rather than trying to make something special happen. Letting go of needing it to be different than it is. Potential to be completely liberated in this moment by accepting yourself just as you are. Accepting your mind with all of its bad habits, judgments and fears. Accepting your heart with all the scars. Your body whatever process of aging and decay it's currently in. Nothing needs to change. 
for you to be completely at ease in this moment. Except for the resistance or the delusion that happiness exists somewhere in the future. Right now, it's like this. And you can be as free as you can in this moment. You have the same answer after meditation as you did before about how much freedom you think it's, or do you want to change your answer? Maybe you're like, that was a terrible meditation. I'm changing my answer. I didn't have any freedom at all. I was stuck the whole time. Some judgment or fear or craving or. I'm going to talk about this more. And again, I chose tomato for two reasons. One, this is, and I have to admit, like this is a little bit of a um, intentional uh, infomercial for this course that I'm teaching that starts in September on Ajahn Sumedho. We're going to do this four month course on his teachings. I've, for the last over a year now, I've been doing these uh, three or four month courses on the lineage that, that I'm teaching from and uh, this Thai forest in Thailand. In Thailand, Buddhism is in a pretty, um, this might be judgmental, but it's also true. It's in a pretty poor state. It's in a state of deep degradation where most of the Buddhists no longer meditate. And it's become a religion of devotion and, um, and delusion from my perspective and from the kind of early Buddhist perspective. But there's these small, and it's like religion everywhere. Right, most, most religions mostly filled with hypocrites. And then there's a handful of people who are very religious, who are very sincere and very uh, wise. 
and buddhism is the same uh, i hope you know that actually if you don't think that like all buddhism is like super great sincere it's a world religion with a whole bunch of humans that are totally full of shit and hypocritical and not actually practicing what the buddha taught and it's like 10 percent of buddhists actually meditate 90 percent have turned it into a something else a belief system a guilt trip maybe <laughs> um but in Thailand, there was these monks, you know, at the turn of the century who said, uh, you know, we really want to actually practice Buddhism and we can't find it. Nobody's, you know, it's hard to find monks who are actually meditating. It's hard to find people that are actually walking in the footsteps of the Buddha. And there was a, um, a man named Ajahn Mun who was lived up in the northeast of Thailand and uh, like was that like an awakened being like got really um, deep into his meditation practice and then people sought him out and so a teacher named Ajahn Cha, who is Ajahn um, Sumedho's teacher, uh, met Ajahn Mun and then got very serious about the meditation practice about liberation about living the precepts and started this whole, um, you know, there was a bunch it happened, you know, simultaneously different monks and they called themselves the Thai forest tradition and they sort of dissed what they called bangkok buddhism the sort of mainstream hierarchical uh buddhism in thailand which uh, they believed had really sort of just become this you know uh religion where people weren't really practicing liberation anymore weren't even practicing for liberation So Ajahn Chah, uh, let me give bring a little personal in here. When I was 30 years ago, when I was um, 19, I did my first meditation retreat with, with Jack Cornfield. And then about a year later, I did uh, some friends of my father's were like, there's this monk coming and you should go meet him. And he's this amazing English monk who's in this Thai forest tradition. And he was in the Ajahn Chah tradition. And he was coming to do a was a five-day retreat and his name was Ajahn Amaro and um and I was like okay yeah I'll go I was like 20 at the time 19 at my first retreat probably 20 maybe 21 at my second retreat and I know I'm going sort of uh, in a detour here but that second retreat somebody asked me the other day I have a 10-day retreat coming up in October and somebody said or a seven-day retreat somebody said it's like first time is that too is it too long to go to a week-long retreat for my first retreat? And I was like, fuck, I don't know. I did it when I was a teenager and it was too long, but I survived, you know, and, um, and I kept coming back to it. And I can remember going to that retreat, like Cornfield was pretty cool. Um, but I felt like at the Cornfield retreat, I was like, these are like my dad's hippie friends and I can't really, can't relate. I'm the only young tattooed punker in the room. And it's cool, like, I don't mind hanging out with my dad's hippie friends. And I, I the message, like, there's some uh, hope. I felt like I got inspired, like there was a message of hope. But then when I met Ajahn Amaro, and he's this, like, he's in robes. It was the first monk, like, Thai forest. He's in the orange robes and shaved head and English. And always everybody with an English accent sounds more intelligent <laughs> and wise and, you know, proper and, and, um, and then it turned out that he was like a like he ordained in 1970 
77 or 78. And as I got to know Ajahn Amaro, he was like, oh yeah, I used to listen to punk and I, you know, I used to listen to the clash every day and I saw the damned and, and I was just like this, you know, like how did I stumble into this? Um, you know, the kind of original Dharma punk. And I'm like this 20 year old going like, is there a place for me in Buddhism? And uh, apparently there was. And it was the first time I heard of Sumedho because Amaro, uh, Sumedho was one of Amaro's teachers. Ajahn Chah is the head of this lineage. Then Ajahn Sumedho is the sort of second. Um, and so I, I got to hear all of these stories about Ajahn Sumedho and all of these wisdom teachings. And it was a few years before I actually met him myself. And you know how that is when somebody's talked up and you kind of has, have an expectation and you're like, well, is this person going to be like really great or am I going to be disappointed or, and all of the, especially in my twenties, I had so much um, delusional projection about what enlightenment meant and what it would look like. What would an enlightened person look like or sound like, or uh, just fantasies about that. Because, you know, who, who fucking knows what an enlightened person may be no different at all. This is also an aside, but I'm not sure if full enlightenment is possible. Apparently it is. Um, but what I've heard, and I think that this is really important, is that when, if you get enlightened, if you're like a fully awakened being, it doesn't change your personality that much. So whatever personality you have coming in <laughs> to your spiritual practice, like this is sort of the bad news for all of you is that your personality is not going to change that much, no matter how free you get. You're stuck with you. It's the perspective that changes, right? And, and even this simple teaching that we started with, right now it's like this. It's not that your personality is going to change, but your outlook, your attitude, your perspective, how you respond is going to change drastically. Um, Sumedho is a, a, was the one of the, I think he's the first Westerner to ordain with Ajahn Chah. So like when Jack Cornfield and, and um, everybody got over there in the seventies, there was like one monk and it was, it was this Ajahn Sumedho. He had ordained in the sixties before there were any other Westerners in this lineage. He had learned Thai and then sought out a Thai meditation master and found Ajahn uh, Cha. And uh, so then when everybody else showed up, there was one Westerner. Uh, Sumedho grew up in Washington state up, uh, up north, uh, outside of Seattle. And um, he just had a birthday. I think he turned like, he's in his mid eighties now. He's still alive. And he just turned like 84, or 85 or 88 or something. <laughs> I'd have to check, but mid eighties, I think. And I love that, you know, if you're kind of new to Buddhism, it seems sort of complicated and you feel like I got to learn all the lists. There's the four noble truths and there's the eightfold path and there's the 12 links of dependent origination and there's the five hindrances and then there's the seven factors of awakening. And then this factor conjoins with that factor. It still seems really fucking complicated. Does it feel complicated? Like, And then the longer you practice it, the simpler it gets. 
And so Semedo after, and they have 227 precepts that they have to follow. And, you know, they, like the dude knows all of it. And then he said, you know, after 40 years of doing this stuff, it's really quite simple. Mindfulness, liberation is understanding that right now it's like this, whatever's happening. All of Buddhism boiled down to the practice of understanding what's happening in the present moment. It's like what Ramdas, you know, that famous Ramdas book, Be Here Now. There's the whole Dharma, Be Here Now. Right now, it's like this. There's the, all you need to know. Right now, it's like this. With, there is a sort of, I feel like there has to be a dot, dot, dot. It's like this. And when you really understand it, you understand it's impermanent. Whatever it is, is changing. It's arising and it's passing. Whatever it is, is being perceived as pleasant or unpleasant or neutral. Whatever it is, you can suffer about it. (laughs) If you don't accept it, this moment, yourself, totally and completely as an impermanent process that's unfolding, if you're attached, you suffer. If you're aversive, you suffer. So it's not enough to just say, it's like this. It also calls for um, what Amaro and Semedo refer to as unentangled participation with reality. Unentangled participation with your emotions. And you know the difference between being entangled in an emotion? I don't know if you've had the experience yet of being having an emotion, but you're not entangled in it. The difference between I'm afraid, I'm fucking terrified. With mindfulness, with right now, it's like this. Sometimes you'll have the experience, and eventually, if you keep practicing, if it hasn't happened yet, you'll have the experience of like, wow, there's a lot of fear present. Without being entangled in it, you'll, just, you'll notice, oh, there's fear. My hand's tight, my getting sweaty, my, my thoughts are racing but there's a real unentangled relationship to a strong emotion. Right now it's like this, fear is here, or even craving, rather than I have to have. Just noticing, oh, wow, there's a, uh, my mind is telling me <laughs> I need this or I need that, or I'd be happy if. Anytime your mind is telling you, you'll be happy when you get dot, dot, dot. It's a craving, right? It's some, some form of desire craving. All right, so let's see what Semedo has to say about liberation. And again, um, I've met a lot of really wise teachers. Russ and I earlier were talking about Thich Nhat Hanh, who I've spent time with and done retreats with. and. Um, he seemed pretty free, seemed pretty liberated. A little slow for me personally, you know, like um, maybe that's just his personality. Maybe the dude's always been pretty chill. I'm a little bit like I need to be in second or third gear, mostly, you know, kind of. Uh, I've met the Dalai Lama, seems super free. It's hard to actually get very close, you know, Sumedo. I've had more access to. I've gotten to know him much more than I got to know Thich Nhat Hanh or the Dalai Lama. Or, um, 
Semedo seems a lot more free than the other Western teachers that, I'm, that I've met. I don't know about 100% freedom. Sometimes I like to think, you know, when I reflect on my own process, this third noble truth that says total freedom in this lifetime, this is the Buddha's teaching. It is possible to get totally free, not in some future incarnation, not in some, but it's possible to do it in this lifetime if we really want it. I feel like my suffering has decreased so dramatically, so drastically, that when I started this path and practice and recovery, and um, I felt like I was suffering most of the time. I had very, very little experience of not being in craving or aversion or fear or anger, or just felt like a kind of constant onslaught of craving and aversion and self centered, fear based motivations, ego-based motivations. And, and then over the years, seeing that decreasing, oh, like, oh, I'm, you know, I'm only suffering 90% of the time <laughs> instead of I'm only suffering 80. Wow, there's like 20% of my life that's not suffering. And then a few more years of like, oh, you know, not maybe half of the time. I'm only suffering half of the time now. That's pretty good. And now... I don't know. I would, it's probably not, it's hard to judge, but I think I only suffer about 10% of the time now. I mean, my girlfriend's here. You could ask her. I don't know. It's hard to tell. Uh, you could ask my kids, you know, somebody else, somebody, it's easier for somebody outside, you know, to kind of be like, no, no, you like 15%, 20%. But to me, it feels like 90% of the time I'm pretty accepting of what's happening. And it's through this practice. Um, but there's, you know, I can get attached and aversive and afraid and all of that stuff, take it real personal and uh, suffer. I can suffer. Didn't all go away, even after 30 years. And I think that Amaro and Semedo and these guys mostly will say something similar about themselves. They'll be like, yeah, mostly free, not 100% of the time. So talking about liberation... Samita, and I'm just going to cherry pick some pieces that jumped out of me. This is a simple little um, book on the Four Noble Truths. The nice thing about the monks, because they're full renunciates, they um, you know do all of these teachings and they write all of these books, and they're all for free distribution. They're they're from their perspective, you're not allowed to sell the Dharma. You can only give it away, which is one of the reasons why, inspired by that tradition why when you come here, you don't get charged to come here. I have to give it away in our lineage. I'm not allowed to say 15 bucks to get in. You got to give it away and be uh, supported by the generosity, by the donations of the people who attend. So this book from the, about the Four Noble Truths, Third Truth. He says, uh, if you want to suffer and waste your life, Go around seeking things that arise. They will take you to the end, to cessation, and you will not be any of the wiser for it. You will just go around repeating the same old dreary habits when you die. You will not have learned anything important from your life. Rather than just thinking about it, really contemplate all that is subject to arising is subject to ceasing. 
apply it to life in general, to your own experience, then you will understand. Just note in your mindfulness, beginning, ending. Contemplate how things are. This sensory realm is all about arising and ceasing, beginning and ending. There can be perfect understanding in this lifetime. I don't know how long, yeah, he's talking about Kadana, one of the Buddha's disciples, lived after the Buddha's sermon, but he was enlightened at that moment. Right then, he had perfect understanding. Oh, so there's a, a previous quote from Kandana. Uh, what was his insight? The Buddha praised at the very end of the sermon. It was, all that is subject to arising is subject to ceasing. All that is subject to arising is subject to ceasing. So just reflect on that for a moment. We're so often taking refuge in impermanent people, places, things, experiences, that thought in the mind that says, I have to have this experience that is going to arise and pass. And Samedo, a little kind of hardcore, kind of, he says, go ahead, spend your life seeking liberation, wasting, what does he say, wasting your life. If you want to, if you want to suffer, waste your life, go around seeking in permanent experiences. Because he's coming around to that through our meditation, you'll uh, start to experience something that is uh, deathless, something that is uh, not subject to impermanence, uh, a level of conscious, a level of freedom that isn't just a material or sensual arising and passing. He goes on to say, sense pleasures are mortal pleasures. Whatever we see, hear, touch, taste, think, or feel is mortal, death bound. So when we attach to the mortal senses, we attach to death. If we've not contemplated and understood it, we should, we just attach blindly to mortality, hoping that we can stave it off for a while. We pretend that we're going to be really happy with things we attach to, only to feel eventually disillusioned, despairing, and disappointed. We might successfully become what we want, but that too is mortal. We're attaching to another death-bound condition. Then with the desire to die, then with the desire to die, we might attach to suicide or annihilation, but death itself is yet another death-bound condition, also impermanent. Whatever we attach to in these three kinds of desires, we're attaching to death, which means that we're going to experience disappointment and despair. We are blinded, caught in this becoming process on the sensual plane, but through knowing desire without judging the beauty or ugliness of the sense plane, sensual plane, we come to see desire as it is. There's knowing. Then by laying aside this desires, craving, clinging, rather than grasping at them, we experience naroda, the cessation of suffering. This third noble truth, which we must, must realize for ourselves, we contemplate cessation, the end of clinging. We cease 
from grasping, we cease from suffering. We say there is cessation and we know it when something has ceased. Before you can let things go, you have to admit them into full consciousness. In meditation, our aim is to skillfully allow the subconscious to arise into consciousness. All the despair, fears, anguish, suppression, and anger is allowed to become conscious. This is key. So often people think about meditation as quiet mind, as stillness. He's saying, if you want to get free, you got to let it all become conscious. Not quiet. Despair, sorrow, suffering. You got to turn towards it, see it clearly, and then cease to cling to it as I and me and mine. That's where the freedom is, not in the temporary avoidance, but in the letting it all become conscious. There's a tendency, he says, in people to hold on to very high-minded ideals. We can become very disappointed in ourselves because sometimes we feel we are not as good as we should be, or we should not feel angry, all the shoulds and shouldn'ts. I've done that a lot. Suffering about how I should be, turning spiritual practice into another way to judge myself. I should, I'm a Buddhist. I shouldn't be angry. I'm a Buddhist. I shouldn't be greedy. I shouldn't need three motorcycles. I'm a Buddhist. I should be non-attached to these things. I should have no desires and turning it into all of the things. So he's talking about um, cessation of clinging. He says, to allow this process of cessation to work, we must be willing to suffer. This is why I stress the importance of patience. We have to open our minds to suffering because it is an embracing of suffering. It is in embracing suffering that suffering ceases. First noble truth is not a philosophy. It's not just an intellectual understanding there is suffering. It is turning towards it, embracing it, seeing it in our mindfulness, in our, in our direct experience that then gives us that freedom. It's Yes, it's suffering, but it's impermanent. It's impersonal. It's unreliable. There's nothing worth clinging to, nothing worth suffering about. Let's see what else he has to say. So he, right now it's like this. In so many ways, he's, I feel like, and if you meet him, if you, you can listen to his talks on YouTube, if you Google him and you can see him talk and, there's a way that his presence feels um, a bit empty, like there's a personality there. But so much of his teaching is uh, to not cling, the cessation of clinging. And I, when I read these words, I, I can feel uh, the, the truth in it, the freedom. He says, in emptiness, 
things are just what they are. When we are aware in this way, it doesn't mean that we are indifferent to success or failure, failure, that we don't bother to do anything. We can apply ourselves. We know what we can do. We know what has to be done and we can do it in the right way. Then everything becomes Dhamma, the way it is. We do things because that is the right thing to be doing at this time and in this place, rather than out of a sense of personal ambition or fear of failure. We do things, uh, you know, sometimes we feel like, well, if I get too accepting, I'll become complacent. If we get too non-attached, you ever have that fear yet? Well, if I really let go, what about my goals? What about my ambitions? What about my plans? <laughs> I've got plans. <laughs> and he says, we know what has to be done and we can do it in the right way. Everything becomes our Dhamma, our truth, our spiritual practice. It's not just when you're on the meditation cushion. It's how do I show up to work? How do I show up in my relationships? How do I show up at the punk show? How do I show up on the motorcycle? How do I show up with mindfulness, with non-attachment, with kindness, with compassion in every aspect of our life? Not just when we come to the Sangha. Uh, in our, at home, in our relationships, this becomes, all of it is Dhamma. The path to the cessation of suffering is the path of perfection. Perfection can be a rather daunting word because we feel very imperfect. As personalities, we wonder how we can dare to even entertain the possibility of being perfect. Human perfection is something no one ever talks about. It doesn't seem at all possible to think of perfection in regards to being human. But an arahant, an enlightened being, is simply a human being who has perfected life. Think about that. Uh, to be awake doesn't mean that life is perfect. It just means that you've developed the perfect response perfectly responding with compassion to all of the pain in your life, rather than aversion and judgment and fear, compassion. The wise response to all of the pain. You can, and from this perspective, <laughs> you, can you can learn to perfectly meet all of the pain with compassion. Non-attachment. Doesn't mean that there's not all of these pleasures and desire system and survival instinct of our, our body, but perfect non-attachment, not clinging, not getting hooked into anything. An arahant is simply a human being who has perfected life, someone who has learned everything there is to learn through the basic law. All that is subject to arising is subject to ceasing. An arahant, enlightened being, does not need to know everything about everything. It is only necessary to know and to understand impermanence. That's a bold statement. And that's so much of what he's saying here in the third noble truth is that if you really know impermanence, that which is subject to arising is subject to ceasing and stop clinging to that which is subject to arising, then you will be free. 
We use Buddha's wisdom to contemplate these teachings, the way things are. We take refuge in the Sangha and that which is doing good and refraining from doing evil, unskillful things. Sangha is one thing, a community. It's not a group of individual personalities or different characters. The sense of being an individual person, a, a man or a woman, is no longer important to us. The sense of Sangha is realized as a refuge. Letting go of our individual identities, taking more identities, I'm part of this community, taking refuge in the Sangha. Realized as a refuge. There is that unity so that even though the manifestations are all individual, our realization is the same. Through being awake, alert, and no longer attached, we realize cessation and we abide in the emptiness where we all merge. I have no idea what he's talking about. <laughs> but it sounds good, right? <laughs> Doesn't it sound cool? Through being awake, alert, and no longer attached, we realize the cessation. We abide in emptiness where we all merge. Does it make sense to you? I'm reaching for it. There's no person there. People may arise and cease in the emptiness, but there's no person. There's just clarity, awareness, peacefulness, and purity. And that's where he ends his teaching on, on liberation, on the fourth, third noble truth. And I love that he ends, uh, rather than as a sort of individ, liberated individual, he says, in community. Rather than I am awakened, the goal is like for all of us to get as free as possible and not so self-concerned, awake, alert, and non-attached, and that we merge and we're a community together and more of a uh, awakened community. I know uh, Thich Nhat Hanh's on my mind because Russ and I were had a sort of a lengthy discussion about him earlier. Uh, and I'm aware that he said, there's this prophecy that there will be a future Buddha, uh, um, Maitreya, is that the name? Maitreya Buddha. Um, and uh, Thich Nhat Hanh said he thought that maybe that, that future Buddha that will come won't be an individual, but will be an awakened community. That it'll be not, not just like, you know, one person, not just the Dalai Lama or Thich Nhat Hanh, but it'll be a whole community of people who are doing this sort of merge into our, our, our awakened activity that uh, Samedo is talking about. I like that perspective. Less pressure on any one of us individually and more like as a community, can we do uh, awakened activity? Right now, it's like this. Wherever you are in this moment, around impermanence around these teachings, whether they totally resonate or your mind is kind of like, eh, I don't know. Whether you feel inspired or confused by these teachings, the practice also is, is just coming back to like, oh, well, right now it's like this. My mind's a little mm, judgmental or critical or afraid or, uh, or feels inspired. 
or feels um, confused or whatever it is. And no matter what's happening, acceptance of ourselves as we are, acceptance of this moment as it is, understanding that this moment is impermanent, ceasing, arising, and passing. And the more we can do that, the more free we become. And uh, freedom is possible in, in every single moment. All we have to do is let go. Samedo's teacher, uh, Ajahn Chah, said, perhaps it's as simple as just two words, let go. Let go of the past. Stop clinging to the past. All of the resentments that we're clinging to are from the past. Let go. Let it go. Easier said than done, I know. Do forgiveness for 10 years and it'll be easier to let go of the past. Let go of needing the future to be some particular way, all of our hopes and dreams and expectations. Let go of it. We'll see. There's a much healthier attitude towards the future and have some plans and some destinations, but we'll see if we get there or not. Let go of needing this present moment to be any different than it is. Right now, it's like this. And maybe you're too warm or you're too cold or you're comfortable or you're uncomfortable, but just radical acceptance of right now, it's like this. It's this temperature. It's this emotion. It's this mind state. It's this body, this age, this weight. <laughs> right now, it's like this. It's the way it is. All right, I think that um, that's all I've got. We've got a few minutes for discussion, conversation, questions. If you have a question at home, you can raise your little blue hand in the participants bar, I think. Looks like um, Jeff and Emily posted the link to Abayagiri to get that Four Noble Truths book. If anybody here is interested in it, you could come take a picture. If you write to the monastery, uh, they'll send you free books. Russ, please. Uh, that was very funny when you said, uh, you don't know what the fuck he's talking about. <laughs> when you said, when you said uh, we, we all uh, we merge into emptiness. But I want to call a little bit of bullshit because I think you do know exactly what he's talking about. Um, because uh, I think what he's talking about, you know more than I do, is that um, emptiness just means emptiness of a separate, a separate existence, a separate independent existence. And emptiness sounds like so zen and kind of awful, really, to a lot of people. But I, I think it means really fullness, because if you just realize the separateness is bullshit, then it's a really full life and you can merge with everything. And it sounds very... Uh, bumper sticker you know like we're all one and all that but i think it's true and i think you know it <laughs> that's like that's my opinion about you <laughs> well i will not disabuse you of that opinion <laughs> but i don't know yeah i when people start throwing around terms like emptiness and merging into the cosmic oneness i'm like what the <laughs> what kind of acid did you eat <laughs> but i also like it like i feel like it's poetic and that it's aspirational 
um, but it's also not my day-to-day uh, -day experience. I walk around feeling pretty much like us. I understand that it's wisdom and that sort of is ultimate wisdom, but I walk around feeling uh, very connected with people sometimes, but also feel like I'm separate from, you know, that there's a sort of individual self over here experiencing that individual self over there. And I understand that the Dharma says, no, no, there is no permanent self, uh, but that's not my subjective experience most of the time. Uh, I feel very, you know, like I'm, I appreciate that there's eight feet distance over here. <laughs> you always say no permanent self, I'm saying no separate self. No separate. I think that's what the emptiness is I'm with that. I'm no, no separate, no, no separate permanent, same, same, same to me, I think. about like from a place like am i on the path like your experience like did it get worse before it got better because i feel like i'm like becoming awake to like the realities of my mind and all its attachment and i just feel like i'm watching this shit show that is my experience and like but i don't have a ton of tools or experience yet to do much about it or yeah. even like yeah i mean is that like <laughs> is that the path I think it is 100% the path. I don't know if at home you could hear, um, but the core of that is like, does it sometimes have to get worse before it gets better? And it's what he was pointing to. He says, you know, this isn't about, uh, I forget how he said it, um, but this is about letting the unconscious, all of that shit become conscious, turning towards suffering. And I think that's why a lot of people either seek meditation, like concentration-based meditation practices that allow us to ignore the unconscious and shut it off because it feels better. And that very that many people who start this sort of deep dive into mindfulness give up after a while. They're like, oof, I, that doesn't, this is making it, I, I came for relief and you want me to see my suffering? This is bullshit. I want my money back. That'd be a free meditation class. <laughs> but I think it's a great question because it's so important um, to normalize that like, yeah, if you're doing it right, you're, it's probably going to get a bit ugly, a bit unpleasant. If you're really turning towards your emotions and you're seeing your attachment and uh, if you're really waking up to like, wow, I'm like fucking causing myself suffering all the time. I was kind of unconsciously doing it before. And, and, and also when you move from blaming the world for your suffering to really being like, oh, I have to take full responsibility. It's not because it's too cold that I'm suffering. It's because I'm aversive to the temperature. That's why I can't blame the temperature for my suffering anymore. It's not how other people act. It's my reaction to how people act. I have to take full responsibility. It's not what my mind is doing. It's how I'm relating to my mind. I have to take full responsibility. Yeah, it feels like, oh, fuck this. This is like asking so much. Now I'm waking up to like, wow, I'm suffering. And I'm the cause of all my suffering. It was way easier when it was everybody else's fault. But if you want to get free, Right. If you want to just blame everyone else for your suffering, like most people do our whole lives, that's you can do that. 
that's a choice you know it's like saying if you want to if you want to suffer just keep seeking refuge in impermanent things and blame, you know just blaming but if you want to get free if you're sincere about this path it's gonna get worse embracing it is going to lead to the end of suffering and developing and like 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 he said like you said um seeing it all in the beginning without having the skills yet it's easy to be like oh well compassion i don't have any fucking compassion yet how many years of compassion practice do i have to do before i'm able to meet my pain with compassion because right now i'm just painfully aware of it non-attachment how many years of meditation do i have to do before i get very skilled at letting go because i'm still the mind, the untrained mind, neuroscience says that the, the clinging to pleasure tendency in the mind, the brain, is like Velcro. All by itself, it clings and it craves. The, you know, the part that experiences pleasure uh, is like Teflon, and it's pleasure, I mean, just slips right off. It doesn't remember, right? But it, it clings. So the, the training, you know, Samato's saying this stuff probably 40, 50 years into meditation practice, into living as a full-time meditator, not like us half-ass Western householders. And he's like a professional. We are amateurs. Even if you're sitting every day for an hour, you know, where they're doing hours and hours and a three-month retreat every year, and he's saying, you know, it's getting better. But first it got worse. And I think it's important to normalize that and to know it's going to be difficult. And there's this sort of necessary, for lack of a better word, dark night of the soul that we all have to work walk through at some point or another. This is kind of like, oh, God, I want to give up. The Buddha, there was a phrase that was something like, um, the rolling up the mat stage where it's kind of like the meditation cushion where you're just like, I'm going to just return this yoga mat, this meditation cushion, and I'm fucking over it because this is hard. I'm going to plug back into the matrix. I know that it's a delusion. I read the books, <laughs> but I'm still, I'm going to fuck it. I'm taking refuge in the material world. Like, if you don't know it yet, the material world will never provide your happiness. And like, you're in a place where you're waking up like, oh, I know that. But it's still so tempting. Maybe if I got enough motorcycles. <laughs> maybe if I got enough hot rods, maybe if I got it in my bathroom remodeled. <laughs> Then I'd be happy. You're welcome. Jeff, go ahead and jump in. Well, you said motorcycles and bathroom remodels, so I got to Yeah, I'm talking shit about you and your new motorcycle. Hey, um, I wonder if I could get you to say a couple words about what feels like a, a caveat to the right now it's like this and let go. Um, you know, Pasano, for example, is a real like environmental activist you know, and, um, um, and a lot of, of these teachers advocate for, you know, being a change and an advocate and all these things. And so that's, uh, 
right now it's like this and this sucks and I'm going to do something about it. So that, you know, it's, um, I just wondered if you could say something about the, the kind of, um, action, the, the, yeah, or the possible slippery slope into complacency when it comes to letting go, you know? Yeah. Yeah. There was that piece where he said, you know, just because we're practicing non-attachment doesn't mean that we don't do the right thing. Um, uh, and I, it's so important what Jeff is, is reminding us and encouraging me to talk about, which is there is a, a shadow of the practice which can become complacency, where you're so focused on accepting yourself just as you are, you're not uh, actually meditating every day, you're not actually practicing the precepts, you're not actually getting your ass on retreat, or accepting the world just as it is where you're not actually speaking out against racism and sexism and all of the forms uh, and manifestations of oppression and ignorance uh, or, or being an activist for the environment or for animals or whatever you feel passionate about is being like, well, I'm so accepting of the way that it is that I'm not going to uh, actually be an engaged, active uh, advocate for a positive change on this planet. Um, so it's, yeah, it does not mean right now it's like, the, I like what, what he said, what Jeff said, which is right now it's like this and it sucks. <laughs> so what can we change? And when it comes to changing, uh, I'm a big fan of the um, serenity prayer that I learned in recovery and 12-step recovery and that discernment that we have to have, because I think so many of us suffer so much about this delusion that we can change everything. And that everything, it sucks and it shouldn't be this way. And so we, let's change everything. And let's wake everybody up. And we suffer at it rather than developing the discernment and the wisdom to be like, you know, there's a lot of shit that we just have to accept that we can't change in this present moment and in this world. And, you know, depending on the experience, but there's, some things that we just have to, our practice is acceptance. And then there's that place of courage. What can I change? I can change my own behaviors. I can change my own attitude. I can change the way I speak to people. I can change the way I show up in, in relationships and in community. And I can also be loud about social, political, environmental activities or, or issues. Um, I can be uh, a voice of, of wisdom, but even how we do that in the world is important. You know, there's a, a lot of very violent anti-violence protests. There's a lot of not very peaceful peace protests. And so of course, from the Buddhist perspective, uh, there's an encouragement from the inside out to, to develop that wisdom and that compassion and be able to embody it and then bring that into activism and bring that into social justice and um, the monks are environmentalists. I mean, they're, they're actives. Uh, you know, the Thai, I was talking about the Thai forest tradition and the uh, forest in Thailand is almost completely gone, like 99% deforested. And so like a hundred years ago, there was forests in Thailand. And I think it's, I might be exaggerating, maybe it's 95%, but almost all of the forest is gone in Thailand. There's a few little nature reserves where you can go and 
pet the elephants and stuff like that. But it used to be jungles and it's just been clear cut and it's just been logged and it's just, you know, to make rice farms and whatever they needed for their, um, and so even the monastery where Sumedho and Amaro and Pasano, um, it's called Wat Pananachat, uh, they will come by nearby. There's just a little bit of forest, few trees left. And uh, people would start, the loggers would come and try to cut them down. And so the monks, part of their political environmental activism is that they would go and ordain the trees as monks. And they'd put monks robes on the trees. And then the loggers wouldn't chop them down because they're Buddhists. And they'd be like, well, we can't chop down those trees because they're wearing monks robes. <laughs> and so part of their, you know, to protect the environment was like, we will ordain these trees as monks, grandfathers, grandmothers. <laughs> so important. And thanks for the reminder on that. And I think we'll leave it there out of time for tonight. Glenn, if you want to hang out afterwards, happy to talk with you once I shut the class down. Um, think about joining this. It's, it's, we meet September, first Saturday in September, first Saturday in October, first Saturday in November, first and end the first Saturday in December. So we meet four times, but it's over a period of 90 days, of three months. And um, uh, Ajahn Sumedho has this um, 108 Dharma talks. And the homework for this course is going to be to listen to 108 of his recorded Dharma talks over the last like 30 or 40 years. So some of them are really old. Some of them are a little bit more contemporary. And we're gonna study, uh, you know, this kind of deep dive into his teachings on liberation. So please consider joining. You can sign up on the website. It's gonna be done completely virtually. Um, there's not gonna be a class here. It's all on Zoom. So uh, even if you're local, you still have to sign into Zoom. Uh, because it's just in with a big class, it's okay for me to do this, but for the small classes, it's hard when there's five people in the room and 20 people on zoom, and we're trying to go through this coursework together. So I'm just going to do this course online, even if you're local. What else do I have coming out? That course. And then there's a retreat, October 10th through 17th, seven-day silent retreat um, that I'll be teaching in Joshua Tree. There is still some room. I think the single rooms are sold out, but there's shared rooms and there's plenty of camping if you want to come to the retreat and camp. Um, there's, the scholar, there's a scholarship. There's an ability to uh, um, sign up for scholarships, but the scholarship money has very much been spoken for. We had a generous donation from somebody in the Sangha for $5,000 for uh, um, scholarship money, but it's all been requested and then some. I think I have 15 scholarship requests. And uh, the cheapest option for the retreats, I think about $700, which is what it costs us to rent the retreat center and feed you for a week. <laughs> um, so please consider coming to that. And also if you have abundance of money and want to donate some extra money so more people can receive scholarships. I need to start doing some fundraising for the scholarship fund so we can let all 15 people who've applied so far into the retreat. So even if you can't make it, but you have some cash, you want to send someone else to retreat. That's a good thing to do. Share your money so that someone else can go practice. Yeah, even if you can't.
And this class is done by donation and everything, pretty much everything we do at Against the Stream is done by donation. And again, it's that thing um, that uh, I was saying earlier where the monks, you know, like you have to give it away. You got to give the books away. You got to give the teachings away um, because it's priceless because you can't put, you know, how much, what's the price for liberation for these, these ancient teachings? You know, we can charge $15 or $20, like a yoga studio or something, but it's so kind of bullshit to make it a um, kind of commerce rather than so much, it feels so much cleaner to just be like, I offer these teachings to you for free. And then if you would like to freely support the meditation center, please do. We suggest that you do. We, we uh, request that you support us and it's up to you to cho choose how you do that. Uh, there's a bowl at the front or you can do Venmo uh, or sign onto the website and um, make donations. You can become a monthly supporter of Against the Stream or there's also a link on the website there where you can do a donation for the scholarship fund to send someone else to retreat if you want to. Was there a question? Yeah. The Venmo is written right underneath the bowl there so you can Venmo donations that way. There's a Venmo and a PayPal and all that stuff. Okay, that's good. Uh, thank you for being here. See you next week, maybe. And may any goodness that is gathered through our practice and discussion of the Buddha's Dharma and Lungpur Sumedho's teaching be shared outward in all directions. May each one of us get as free as possible. And together, may we create a positive change on this planet. Thanks for tuning in to the podcast. This is Noah Levine, founder of Against the Stream and Refuge Recovery. If you feel moved to leave a donation, there's a link in the show notes.